Last week, Brad taught through uh, chapter 1 of Romans, starting in verse 18 through the end of the chapter, and uh, that is the beginning of a much larger argument uh, that Paul is making about the sinfulness of man, and it goes all the way through verse 20, really, of chapter 3. Uh, for obvious reasons, Brad chose not to tackle the entire pericope at once, um, but I'm going to take a large chunk of the rest. And so uh, this is very much in conjunction with what Brad was teaching last week. Also, while Brad took a much more exegetical verse-by-verse approach, uh, we're going to be looking at the large themes that Paul is talking about in general as we um, look at this aspect of the gospel. And so there will be, it won't be as linear, but we will see, I think, some of the truths about the gospel that Paul is making about sin. And so let's review uh, our definition of the gospel. And it is this, that the just and gracious God of the universe, in response to hopelessly sinful people, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we can't, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross, and to show his power over sin in the resurrection, so that all who respond to the Holy Spirit's call to repent and believe in Jesus will be reconciled to God forever. And we are looking specifically uh, at this idea within the gospel message that the gracious and just God of the universe uh, does all of this in response to hopelessly sinful people. Uh, And it is not a pleasant thing to preach on the sinful state of humanity. Uh, And and it's difficult. Um, And not just because for... 40 minutes, you get to talk about sin to people, uh, but also because for the seven days leading up to those 40 minutes, you have to confront uh, sin in your own life and in in your studying. And so um, as sobering as I hope uh, this will be, it has been uh, for me this week, Um, but it's important to talk about sin. Uh, We don't like to. Um, as a church, and even in in this coming generation, uh, there's a tendency to just not talk about sin, to say we're going to talk about love and grace and not sin, or when we talk about sin, to call sin something other than what it is, um, which is sin, and that uh, is tragic, uh, because so much is lost. In fact, uh, the great Reformed preacher, or a great Reformed preacher, there were several of them, John Watson, Uh, said that where there is no side of sin, there can be no repentance. So it's important to talk about sin because a knowledge of sin precedes necessarily repentance from sin. And then not only a knowledge of sin, but a knowledge of the reality of sin. And perhaps my favorite preacher uh, ever, Charles Spurgeon, Uh, said this, that if your sin is small, then your Savior will be small also. But if your sin is great, then great must your Savior be. And so we are going to talk about the great depth of our sin so that we can realize and rejoice in the great Savior and the great salvation 
that we have. And to do that, we're going to look primarily at Genesis. Uh, We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to look all the way through uh, chapter 3, really verse 8 and 9. We... We're not going to read all that. We're actually just going to read chapter 2. But if you were to come up in a more liturgical uh, church setting or if you were in the church 100 years ago um, and had no choice, uh, you would be aware of a practice that I think is is just great um, and that we are going to uh, practice today. And uh, there would be the reading of Scripture and then the Scripture reader or whoever was uh, leading things uh, would say the word of the Lord, to which the entire congregation would reply, praise be to God, uh, because we ought to be thankful that we have this word of God, this revelation from God that tells us of our great sin and of our great Savior. And so stand with me. We're going to read chapter 2, and then uh, we will join in with the church of old uh, in that specific liturgy. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you, who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are seeking, who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not know, do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We praise you that you have revealed to us our great sin, and I pray that now we would see that. Uh, We would understand our sin and cling to our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. In order to give a full picture and a full outline of what Paul is saying in chapter 1, 2, and 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans, uh, we are actually going to look at chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis. Um, And this is not because the only thing that I've studied is Genesis, um, but rather because it's really important to see how these things fall within the entire redemptive storyline. We ought to read scripture in its proper context, and we typically teach that the context for scripture is whatever time, setting, and audience the author is writing to, but there is a fourth context that may even be more valuable, and it's the context in which it falls in redemptive historical history. When where it falls within the the storyline of God's redeeming his great people. Uh, And so Paul is writing in the context of this storyline. He's writing in light of what God has been doing throughout history. And we're going to look at it. And it starts in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And and you know Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but we are going to look at them again. Because in Genesis 1, we see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. Um, And the Spirit of of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Um, And this hopefully will not come as a surprise to any of you, uh, but the original language of the Bible is not English. Uh, It's it's Hebrew um, in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament. Uh, There is some Chaldean also in the Old Testament. Um, But uh, the name for God um, in Genesis 1 uh, is Elohim. Uh, and, and so Genesis 1 literally says, in the beginning, Elohim created 
the heavens and the earth. And then it goes through, and in the first three days, if you remember, we see this process of Elohim separating things, light from dark, day from night, uh, waters from waters with the sky, land from sea. And in the, th- in the next three days, we see God filling what he has separated. Um, and on day six, we see that God creates humanity in his own image. Male and female, he created them in his own image. And in Genesis 1, what we're seeing is this picture of this God who is a king and by his very word is creating all things. And all things are subject to to him and we know this because he speaks and they obey. Let there be light and there was light. Let there be an expanse between the water and there was. Let there be birds and, and fish and let them reproduce according to their own kind. And they do. It happens. God is a king and his word is law and he is king over all of creation and over humanity. And so this Elohim is this king over everything. And then we move to Genesis chapter 2, and we see that we get the seventh day, and on the seventh day, Elohim rested. But then we come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, and we get a new creation story, a more specific creation story, and God uh, creates a garden. He plants a garden. And he plants it between four rivers, uh, the Cush, the Gihon, the Tigris, the Euphrates. There's a garden in this, and in this garden, he places Adam. And in Genesis 1, it's that God creates humanity. In Genesis 2, he places Adam in the garden, and he takes from Adam a rib, and he makes Eve. And in Genesis 1, Elohim tells humanity to be fruitful and multiply, to rule over the land. And in Genesis 2, we have a new name for God. Genesis 2-3, we see that God is no longer called Elohim. He's called Yahweh Elohim. Uh, Later in the first five books of the Bible, uh, that is just shortened to Yahweh. And so we see in Genesis 1, Elohim creates. In, Yah- in Genesis 2, Yahweh plants this garden, places Adam and Eve in the garden. And this has caused um, a lot of uh, different opinions within the Christian community. And typically I wouldn't bring them up, but I think it's important to know uh, because it really helps us see what Paul is doing here, what Paul is saying. Um, and, 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 and I'm only going to look at two uh, basic theories of, of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and Genesis 1 and 2 in specific. And the first is this, that uh, there are two different names used in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and very different accounts of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And the only rational explanation is that there were multiple authors, uh, that there were four different authors, um, and who they are doesn't really matter, uh, but that these four different authors uh, had four different jobs, were from four different walks of life, and so they, uh, they spoke about God differently from each other. And so uh, in the first one, we have the name for God being Elohim, and in the next one, we have it being Yahweh, and this is why this difference occurs. Um, and there is a uh, second, uh, a school of thought, uh, which most of us will probably follow, fall into, and that is that uh, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. 
Um, and so there were not four different authors. It was just Moses, and he used a different name for God in Genesis 1 from Genesis 2, uh, which leaves the question still, why are there two different names for God? And I believe that the reason why is this, um, and, and I'll give a few more arguments for this. In Genesis 1, God reveals himself to be Elohim, the creator and king of all creation. And we see Elohim used a lot in the New Testament again. And in those instances, he is talking about the world in general. God brings wrath to the Chaldeans, to the Phoenicians, to the Egyptians, to the Babylonians as Elohim. Uh, But in Genesis 2, God reveals himself to be Yahweh, the covenant father of his special people, Adam and Eve. Genesis 1 is a big picture story of creation in general, and God is the God of all creation. But Genesis 2 is a very specific picture of God who walks with his people, who is Lord of his people, who lives in covenant uh, with his people, Adam and Eve, specifically. Uh, Everything is made specific in Genesis 2 because Yahweh is the God who relates to his people specifically. And we see Yahweh appear time and time again. Yahweh tells Noah to build himself an ark. Uh, Yahweh calls Abram Abram at the time out of us of the Chaldeans and says, there's a place for you. I'm going to make you uh, a father of many nations. Yahweh speaks to Moses in the burning bush and says, you're going to be the one who I use to set my people free from captivity. Uh, Yahweh chastises, anoints, chooses David, and gives the covenant with David that his kingdom will reign forever, that there will always be one of his children on the throne. Um, And so we see that God is the God of everybody, and God is the God of his covenant people, And in Genesis 1 and 2, that coincided. Adam and Eve, all of humanity, were God's covenant people. Um, But that's not the case later in the Bible. Uh, Israel becomes the covenant community, and all the other nations are just the nations that God is God over in general, and he's king over them, even though they do not have his covenant and they do not have his statutes. Uh, And that happens because of Genesis 3. And Genesis 3, again, is a familiar story, uh, and so we'll just recap it briefly. Um, God has given a commandment in Genesis 2. Be fruitful, multiply, work and keep the garden and the land, uh, rule, over, uh, rule over the land, uh, and do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the fruit of the tree of life. Uh, He says, on the day you eat from the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. And in Genesis 3, out of nowhere comes a serpent, and the serpent can talk. And the serpent talks to Eve. And Eve is speaking with this serpent at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam is somewhere in the background, but still in the midst. Uh, and er, And the serpent said to Eve, you know, God said, on the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. But... You will not surely die. And Eve and then Adam do what Paul says in Romans 1 over and over again. They they exchange the truth of God for a lie. 
They exchanged the truth that God would pour out judgment on them for disobeying for the lie that they are independent. They, tra- they exchanged the truth that God loved them and wanted what was best for them for the lie that God was trying to hold them down. Adam and Eve exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And here is something that we need to realize. This is, this is, there are going to be some misconceptions about sin, hopefully that are addressed uh, today, this morning. Uh, and here's one of them. Sin is not the lie. We tend to confuse sin with evil. And we tend to confuse sin with the great evil that is in the world and the temptation that we experience. That lie that says, not God's way but your own. Sin is not the lie. Sin is the exchange. Sin is when we exchange that truth for the lie. And so we come back to Paul, and this is what Paul is saying. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Who? Who did? As we begin to look at who, we'll see basically three things about sin. There are a ton more, uh, but my Baptist upbringing will not let me move far away from threes. So, uh, and sitting under John Frame, but that also... Um, sin, according to Paul, is universal. And this is the truth. Adam and Eve were everybody's first parents. And when they exchanged the truth of God for a lie into the human bloodline came sin. Sin is universal. And Paul is pointing this out. In chapter 1, he says that sin sin affects everyone. And he starts with the immoral Gentile in Romans 1, 18 through 32. And he says that these people are not the covenant people of God. However, they have creation. And there is enough evidence within creation that they ought to see and embrace some of the eternal attributes uh, of God. They ought to know there is a God who created. But instead of worshiping this creator God, they worship the creation. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And because of it, God gives them over to such things as homosexuality, sexual sins, uh, other things like malice, anger, gossip, hate. All of these things uh, are, are the sin that God gives them over to because of their great sin, which means that, that, that sin, capital S, should not be confused with sins that we commit. We should not confuse that. Yes, we commit sins, but it's because of this great universal sin that we all are under. We don't, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sin is universal. Not only is the immoral Gentile a sinner, but the moralist Gentile. And that's what we see in the first 10 uh, verses of chapter 2, is that Paul is saying, you who judge, are you doing the things that you're judging? You know, are you being hypocritical? 
Are you calling out these wrongs and doing those wrongs or even other wrongs? Because all sin at its heart is the same. It's that exchange of the truth of God for a lie. Um, Jesus says, get the plank out of your eye before you remove the speck from your brother's eye. Or, Jesus standing next to a woman caught in adultery says to the Pharisees, the one without sin, let him cast the first stone. The, the immoral Gentile, the moralist Gentile, and then in Jesus' case, specifically, the law-breaking Jews. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 9 through 29, and it really, it continues all the way till 320. God gave you the law. God gave you the covenant. God gave you the circumcision, entering you into his covenant community. But these things mean nothing if you are a lawbreaker, and we are all lawbreakers. Sin is universal, and we know it. We know it. Uh, We don't want to think about it, uh, but... Again, Charles Hodge says it better than I can. Um, Charles Hodge said that original sin is the only rational solution of the fact of the deep, universal, and early manifested sinfulness of men in all ages, of every class, and in every part of the world. Humanity is sinful. But lest we relegate sin to this thing that that just covers everybody, um, Paul then goes on to say, um, goes on to point out that sin is also personal. Sin is personal. Paul lists all of these practices uh, that people are doing. Uh, we, we, we mentioned them before. Uh, he lists them out so that you can see. You may think, oh, well, I don't do that. Certainly I am not a homosexual. However, Paul in the same breath mentions gossip, slander, malice, wrath, um, all of these things. And slowly you start to see, that's me. Or you should. That's me. That's me. I've exchanged this truth of God for a lie. It's personal. Um, It's not merely original sin, although that is a part of it. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner, but you still sin. You join in with this. You give in to that sinful nature. Everyone does. Paul says in in verse 6 of chapter 2, that God will render to each according to his works. Uh, And Derek Webb uh, elaborates on that in the the house show, uh, in that album, and and he's speaking about it, and I'll I'll just let his words uh, speak for themselves. He says, if you confess... Oh, I know I'm sinful. Scripture tells me we've all fallen short, right? And that's me too. 
I'm sinful, but you can't honestly put your finger on one sin you've committed all day because your view of sin has become nothing more than this cultural hiding game, then you're not experiencing real joy because if all I can confess is a knowledge of how sin has affected me, but not any of my real sins, if I don't really know that I'm sinful, then I don't truly know and I'm not truly encouraged by the fact that I've been saved because saved from what? If I'm not really sinful, then what's the big deal? What's the good news? It's just news. You are affected by this original sin, but you are complicit as well. You have partaken of sin. And the reality is that the reason that you have sinned is because you love it. And you loved it in that moment or in these moments more than you love God. You exchange the truth of God that my way is best for the lie. Sin is personal. And so for us, we are called to reflect on our sin. And for others, we are called to call out the fact that there is sin. There is right. There is wrong. And that it's personal. It's not just a general evil plaguing the world, but it's a specific personal sin that you have committed and that you have acted upon. Sin is also egregious. That is to say that all sin is an affront on God. Uh, You may recall the story of King David. Uh, He was on his roof looking out and he sees uh, Bathsheba bathing, and he lusts after her and wants her, desires her. She, however, is a married woman, and so he orchestrates this plan to send her husband off to war uh, and have him on the front line, and then everybody else pull back. Uh, And this happens, and Uriah is killed. And Nathan, the prophet of God, comes to David, and he tells him of the sin. Uh, he, He tells him, uh, the story of, of a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man has many sheep, and the poor man has one sheep. Um, and, and David is confronted with the reality of his sin. And in his great sorrow over his sin, uh, in his uh, repentance, David pens uh, Psalm 51, where he says, Create in me a clean heart. And in Psalm 51, David says this, Against you alone, O God, have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. And in one very real sense, this uh, is just a bunch of nonsense. Um, David has sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his wife. He sinned against the nation of Israel. He sinned against the commanders of the army. It's really just kind of hard to find somebody that David hasn't sinned against in this story. Uh, And so in one sense, you know, what are you talking about, David? You've sinned against everybody. Let's let's be real. Um, But in another sense, in a very true sense, David is realizing uh, that his sin is that exchange of the truth of God for a lie, and that at its heart, it's against God that he sinned. It's at, at the heart, sin is a fr- an affront on God alone. Um, and, and, and the great American preacher, 
uh, Jonathan Edwards says this about sin, um, that any sin is more or less heinous, depending on the honor and majesty of the one whom we had offended. Since God is of infinite honor, infinite majesty, and infinite holiness, the slightest sin is of infinite consequence. The slightest sin is nothing less than cosmic treason when we realize against whom we have sinned. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And everything obeyed his command because he is the king. He is Elohim. And then God breathes life into humanity, sets humanity apart. He names him Adam, creates Eve, and Yahweh, Elohim, interacts with his people. He walks with Adam and Eve. He gives them covenant. Uh, He loves them. This is the God that we serve. This is the God of the universe. He is Yahweh Elohim. He is king. He is father. Uh, He is Lord. And so when we sin, we are sinning against him. If you do not think highly of your sin, it's because you don't, or if you do not think uh, deeply about your sin, it's because you do not think highly of God. If your sin doesn't wreck you, then your understanding of God is deeply flawed. And this is why Paul says in Romans time and time again that God's wrath is for those who sin because you've not merely committed some misconduct. You haven't merely lied or stolen, or committed adultery. You've sinned against the great God of the universe. You have offended the name of God. You have taken the name of the Lord in vain, as it were. And so God pours out his wrath, and we see God's wrath poured out equally and uh, in proper response to all of the facets of sin. Uh, Sin is universal, and so God's wrath is impartial. In chapter 2, verse 11, uh, we see that. We see see that the wrath of God is to the Jew first and and then to the Gentile, uh, and, and the blessings, the righteousness of God is to the Jew first and the Gentile, because in God there's no partiality, for God shows no partiality. Um, and, and, and we see that God's wrath, because sin is personal, is just. God's wrath is impartial. God's wrath is just. In verse 12, Paul says that all who have sinned without the law will be judged and perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by it. God's wrath is just. But also, because of the heinous nature of our sin, because of the egregious affront on God that our sin is, God's wrath is righteous. God's wrath is defending his honor. God would be unholy to not wholly judge sin. God's wrath burns against sin. 
And throughout Scripture, we see it. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it uh, in the apocalyptic writings of, of Revelation, Daniel, Ezekiel. God's wrath burns hot against sin. But in spite of all of that bad news, we are talking about the gospel, and the gospel is good news. And the gospel is the good news that God's wrath is satisfied in Jesus. Before Jesus is arrested and taken to be crucified, he prays um, in the garden, and he prays this, you know, that you would take this cup from me, O oh God. Uh, and this cup is not a new thought in Scripture. It falls in its redemptive historical place. Uh, because if you are familiar, which you ought to be, with your exilic and your post-exilic uh, prophetic literature, namely Isaiah through um, Malachi, uh, you see this theme over and over and over again. And you ought to be, you ought to realize this, that God pours out the cup on Babylon. God pours out the cup on Egypt. God pours out the cup on the Assyrians, on all of the nations. Uh, and then in Revelation, again, there are bowls, there are cups that God pours out with judgments. And this cup is filled with God's wrath. And the Bible says quite literally that those who drink of the cup do not just sip from the cup of God's wrath, but rather they drink it to the dregs. I love that term, um, even though I, I don't like that concept at all, uh, to the dregs. Um, and that means that there is not a drop of, of anything left in the cup. They have literally, to the bottom, drunk the whole cup of God's wrath. And so Jesus realizes what is about to happen. He realizes that he is about to face the impartial, just, righteous, white-hot wrath of God, and he's going to drink that cup to the dregs. And he says, if there is any way that you can take this cup from me, I would that you would do that. But not my will, but yours be done. And God on the and Jesus on the cross experiences the full wrath that we, the sinner, deserves. And so God satisfies his wrath by pouring it out on Jesus to the last drop. Do you realize the depth of your sin? Derek Webb later goes on to paraphrase what Charles Spurgeon says. And he says, If you have a if your sin is real then your Savior is real. But if all you have is a hypothetical cultural sin, then all you have is a hypothetical Savior. Jesus died for you, for our sin, to satisfy the wrath of God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take some time to reflect. And I want you to reflect on sin in your life. Not merely on your sinful state, but on your sin. Confess it to God. If you have not yet believed on this Jesus who has taken the cup of God's wrath and drank it for you, consider Jesus. Repent. Believe. 
Accept his substitution for you. And if you have, consider the truth of your sinfulness, the depth of your sinfulness. Reflect on that and then reflect on the depth of salvation and grace and mercy and love that you've received from God the Father by the power of the Spirit through his Son, Christ Jesus. And praise the name of Jesus. Let's take a moment to reflect.